0: Again, my name is Justin Smith, and I am the campus minister with RUF at the University of North Texas, um, and just just a brief privilege, uh, this moment, thank you for um, uh, your support of us. Colleyville has been a, a partner and supporter of our ministry, and thank you. We, I just want to thank you personally for your support, support um, in financially and in prayers. Please continue to support financially and prayers for us. I'll also ask for another prayer. My wife, Catherine, I have two other kids, Vivian, who's five, and Nathaniel, who's two. Uh, But my wife, Catherine, is two weeks away from having our third child. And so our world is about to be completely altered. So pray for our family, for our little kids, and especially for my wife as she enters these last couple weeks of pregnancy. Thank you. St. Irenaeus, who is one of the early church fathers, once wrote this. The glory of God is a man fully alive. By which he meant that a person who knows that he is in Christ, that he is resurrected with him, that he has God as his father, that he is completely loved by him, and therefore stands justified before God and man, that man is on fire. He is fully alive. Well, one movie that I'm, I'm going to try to convince uh, everyone I know to, to watch at some point is a movie called A Hidden Life. It is a beautiful, slow-moving movie that's about three hours long, but it's worth every minute. And it tells the tale of this man named Franz Jagerstatter, who is this Austrian man who is also a Christian. And as a Christian, he, he, has, he was at a conscientious objector to World War II in the 40s, and especially to Nazism. And at the time, though, as an Austrian, the Germans were drafting Austrians into the Nazi armor and, army, and Franz refused to enter and to swear allegiance to Hitler and to do evil in his eyes. And despite almost every voice around him telling him that he was a fool, he needed to just go and do this. He did not need to give up his life for this cause. He continued to say he cannot go against his conscience. eventually we see Franz being thrown into jail because of his defiance. And the jailer tries to reason with him, to just go along with it. He tries to convince him that he doesn't even need to mean it when he speaks the words of allegiance. He just needs to say it and to be able to get through it. Why would he risk his life and his family's life and their well-being? But he continually rejects these offers. Finally, the jailer, in a moment of frustration because he cannot comprehend this man's resolve, says, Look, I can free you. You can just sign these papers and you'll be able to go free. To which Franz simply responds, I am free. A truly free man. Not constrained by needing to justify his actions, but constrained by doing what was right before God. Franz knew what it meant to be a man justified by God, and that compromise was not wise or good. And Paul is a man like this. (laughs) A man fully alive. A man fully alive, made alive by the gospel. And even as he is writing in jail, he was free. What does it look like to be a human being fully alive? There's a lot of things in this passage, but I really just want to look at Paul and a couple things that he believed that made him a man fully alive. And I'm just going to read the passage again. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you continue to speak to us how you continue to reveal to us uh, your goodness and your gospel may we learn from your word may we learn from Paul uh, what it means to be fully alive in you I pray all this in Jesus name amen C.S. Lewis once wrote this this famous quote he said our, our desires are not too strong but too weak we are half-hearted creatures Fooling about with drink and sex when ambition and, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who goes making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. If we're honest, I think most of us live fairly half-hearted lives. Our lives are beset with anxieties. Anxieties about what others think. Uh, we're constantly trying to justify ourselves and our actions and our conversations. We are racked by insecurities, always feeling the need to explain ourselves. We live in constant fear about the future, and most often even question God's love for us. We know very little of the rest and joy that God offers and desires for us. But what did Paul know that made him so sincere, so courageous, that he was free and fully alive, even in prison? What was it that Paul understood about himself and about his call that made him devote his life not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly to God. Just a couple big, big idea points from this text. First, Paul trusted God's loving authority and his plan. And secondly, Paul recognized that everything, everything was a gift of grace. So, first, Paul trusted God's loving authority and his plan. In Ephesians, the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul starts with God. God in his incredible, awe-inspiring plan, his goodness and his graciousness, the goodness and graciousness of God's salvation. And then he gives this little digression here in, in chapter 3, where he talks about God's plan, but he talks about why is he in prison? Why has he been called? And what is it that motivates him to continue preaching this message? In verse 1, he starts off by saying that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. And notice even this little verse. We learn so many things. He doesn't say he is a prisoner of Rome, which he was. But he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Jesus. See, even in that, Paul's understanding of how the world was run and history unfolded was according to God's design and not the world's intentions. Paul didn't see the world merely by worldly terms. As in, when I get out of this place, then I'll be able to do my work again. As if God's plan were on pause while he was in prison. Now, Paul was not discouraged that he was in prison, but in fact saw it as God's design that he was in prison. Paul trusts and submits to God, even in prison, to his plan. verse 9, verse 10, he talks about the manifold wisdom of God and the eternal purposes of God. This is how Paul looks at the world and filters the world. There's a few things I think we learn from this is that we tend to see setbacks or failures or closed doors or changes in direction as often as some sort of breach or hindrance in God's plan. As if we, have, if we had done things perfectly right or made the right choices, the things would absolutely be easier for us right now. <laughs> but that is not the way Paul sees it. Paul sees even his imprisonment which was severely limiting to one of God's most important missionaries, he sees this as part of God's plan. Even unto verse 13, so far that Paul would suffer, he sees us as part of God's plan, as his call for service and to the glory of the Ephesians. So even the things we might see as a setback or a delay is not a setback for God. And his wisdom. Uh, when I graduated from college, uh, my primary goal was to be an RUF intern. Uh, intern is, is, is someone who comes and works on campus with a campus minister like me for a couple years uh, to try on ministry often, uh, to serve, and to learn what ministry look, life looks like on the campus. But in the summer of 2008, as when I was raising money, it was a hard time to raise money. Uh, I did not make it. At the end of the summer, I got a phone call from the RUF office that said, uh, sorry, Justin, you're not going to make it as an intern. And my initial reaction was just the opposite of Paul. How could God allow this? <laughs> I knew that ministry was a good thing. It seemed that God was moving me in that direction. But why would he close that door? Why this setback in, his imag- in my imagined Imagination of his plan. And during that time, I found this hymn by a woman named Ann Steele. And one of the lines always sticks with me. She said this, whatever thy providence denies, I calmly would resign. For thou art just and good and wise, O bend my will to thine. For thou art just and good and wise, O bend my will to thine. And I return to that line often, O bend my will to thine. God is just and he is good and he is wise and he also happens to be in control of all things. That means whatever responsibilities that God has called you to, wherever you're at, in your given circumstances, your calling is present, not future. Your calling is not on hold. Until you graduate, or until you move on, or get this other job, or get married, or fill in the blank. Your calling is now where God has put you, to trust Him where He has put you. And secondly, because Paul says he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not of Rome, his calling he sees as always higher. He's always answering to God and not to man. And this is true of us who are in Christ. Which means if you are called to be a student or a boss or an employee or a mother for Jesus Christ, you are called to be in service to God where you're at. That is your higher calling. Wherever you are, you, you work and serve as unto God. Being faithful where you are right now, right here. Faithful where he has called you. And lastly, Paul says he's, he's he's a servant, he's a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. He sees that he is uh, that he is um, not simply serving for himself, but for the sake of others. That where he is, where he's serving, is for the sake of those around him. In fact, we learn from Acts that it is because of this message of reconciliation that he's been preaching of the gentiles being fellow heirs. This is why he got thrown into prison to begin with. But Paul boldly follows God's revelation. And if that meant being thrown into prison, then that was also God's will. Which means Paul, like Paul, we can choose to submit and even suffer for the sake of of others, uh, The following and trusting God's plans means embracing suffering and death even for the sake of the others, for the sake of those around us. And so we see Paul trusts God's loving authority and plan. And then secondly, second big point, that Paul recognized that everything about himself and about his calling, about his life in this world was received by grace. Grace for Paul is central to everything. This grace of God is the source of revelation for Paul. It's the source of his calling. And it's the source of his power to work. And the word grace in scripture could also be translated as a gift. It's the gift of revelation to Paul. It's the gift of his calling. It's the gift of power or strength. And verses 2-5, through Paul talks about how he was revealed a mystery to steward. But this revelation, he says, was a gift. It was given to me. It was the gift of God's grace. In other words, Paul did not manufacture this idea or, or this connection. He did not perceive it on his own. No, God graciously revealed this mystery to him as a gift. The insight into this mystery, he perceived, was by revelation to him. And what is this mystery? Well, in Scripture, a mystery, according to Scripture, is not something that's ethereal or unknowable, but something that was formerly hidden that has now been revealed. And what does he say this is in verse 6? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery is that God are, is going to bring in those who are far off in. Which means there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. That all, no matter their background, can have equal share of Jesus and his benefits. And this is all because of the grace of and love of God. Because in God's kingdom, even the latecomers receive all the benefits. Which is good news for probably all of us in this room. We are late to the party. Uh, the gospel has come all the way to Texas, as Josh said. We are all the laborers in the vineyard that showed up at the end of the day. And yet grace has come to us. Which means that there's no one too far off. Uh, There's no one, no matter their background, ethnicity, or how sinful they are, that cannot be brought in. And what Ephesians has made clear throughout is that we actually don't receive just payment. We don't get what we deserve because of our rebellion, but we receive what Jesus deserves. Christ stepped in to pay our penalty and allow anyone, anywhere, whenever, who would repent to be reconciled and welcomed into God's people. Every once in a while, I'll have a student who will walk into RUF, who uh, maybe grew up in a PCA church, and knows that they should have come to RUF in their mind beforehand. And they kind of sheepishly walk in the door, and they, they say something like, I, I should have been coming several years ago, but I'm finally coming in now. And my response to them is a great welcome. <laughs> that anyone who would come and turn and repent and come back to the Father, who would come to be welcomed by the gospel, I want to welcome them with great open arms because the, God, the, the gospel is grace. Good news of grace for all who will hear as say we repent and believe. So again, consider, who do you think beyond the reach of the gospel? Who in your life do you still consider beyond the reach of the gospel? Because the gospel says there is no one. Not even Paul, the persecutor and murderer has been included in this family. So for Paul, his knowledge of this beautiful mystery was a gift of revelation. It is by grace. But secondly, Paul's calling as a minister is also a gift. Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So this calling for Paul is not because he had earned it. That he climbed some religious ladder and was able to prove his worthiness before God. In fact, in Philippians, he recounts that his life on the achievement treadmill was less than worthless. He recounts that all of his qualifications and achievements, and he says that they were worse than useless to him. In fact, they were working against him and his understanding of grace. Now, Paul sees that his identity and calling as a minister is received by God's grace. It's a gift, not something he achieves. His identity is a given identity. And in fact, it was in some ways probably because he was so previously anti-grace that God called and commissioned Paul. This is why Paul calls himself the very least of the apostles in verse 8. And he's not being falsely modest here or self-deprecating. But Paul recognizes that he was the one who persecuted the church, actively trying to destroy it. One who was, as in Acts 9 puts it, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And yet by God's amazing grace met Jesus on the road and everything changed. I think there's something vital we learn from Paul here. Our culture, much like Paul's previous religious culture, is a meritocracy. Uh, You are what you merit, (laughs) you deserve only what you earn. You are what you make of yourself. Your identity is not given by any source. It is your own definition of what you yourself can achieve. Which means in our culture you are your own champion or your worst enemy. Our culture says that you are your job title. Or you are your worst failure. You are what you earn or you are what you do. Or your worth is found in how much money you do or don't have. in how many social media likes or followers you have. Or the scope of your influence or the depth of your impact or the weight of your legacy. This is who you are. But is this really the case? The incipient lie of our culture is that your identity has to be personally crafted and created it in order for you to matter. But let me ask you this. How has this meritocracy left us? Uh, no doubt we are far more depressed. Far more anxious. Far more insecure. Far more enraged. Far more divided. Far more overworked. Far more medicated. Far more lifeless. We are always on the treadmill of performance and are never able to rest in this meritocracy because if it's all up to you, if you are your own champion or worst enemy, then you never can really stop. How I know this is true, because I think all of us deep down are thinking, even as I'm preaching, I hope they don't find out that I'm a fraud. If they really knew me, they wouldn't want to be my friend. We know we really are not as smart as we present ourselves to be or well-read as we might project. We really don't have it all together like we pretend or we really are often so fearful of what others think. And we really are afraid to say the wrong thing to that person or to make the wrong decision. There's often... No rest in even just trying to be ourselves, whatever that means. There's this scene in the movie Chariots of Fire that always sticks in my mind. And In that movie, it draws the distinction between these two runners in the Olympics, one named Eric Liddell and the other named Harold Abrams. Liddell is this Christian who runs because he has this secure knowledge of God's love for him. And because of this secure knowledge, he can simply enjoy running, win or lose. Abrams, on the other hand, takes very little joy in running, but only in winning or accomplishment. And at one point he says this. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor. Four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I submit that one reason we live half-heartedly, that we don't look like human beings fully alive, is that we are still trying to constantly prove ourselves and justify our existence. Rather, what if it really is all grace? What, what if, if what God wants is to, to give us the gift of grace? To know our justification. To know that our reason for being, that it is received by grace. That we don't have to constantly work to prove ourselves. If we are in Christ, we are justified. We are made right with God. We are loved. We are fully alive. New creations. We don't have to wonder, am I enough? Christ has made us for himself. We don't have to wonder, am I acceptable? Christ has made us acceptable. We don't have to wonder, am I loved? Christ has proven once and for all on the cross by dying for us that we are eternally loved. Richard Lovelace, in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, says this, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Few you know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform, you are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only grounds of acceptance. And relaxing in that quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification, as faith is active in love and gratitude. What he means is, if we are in Christ and we claim his righteousness as our own, His achievements as our own. His perfections are ours. His belovedness before the Father is ours. His wisdom is ours. His gifts are ours. Then we don't have to dwell in insecurity or endlessly pace on the treadmill of do more, be better. Like our world wants to tell us to do. Christ has done it all for us. And when we know this and appropriate it in our daily lives, we can actually live as secure human beings set on fire to live in this world. And this is what Paul and Franz from that earlier illustration knew. That even in suffering, God was for them and was with them because they had nothing to earn and nothing to prove. They were really alive. And they were really free. And it gives us what Paul says in verse 12. It gives us this boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. That we have boldness and confidence in our standing before God. That we can approach him because he has made us for himself. And therefore we can live in Christ with boldness and confidence in the world. And Loveless finishes that quote off with this idea of relaxing or resting in that quality of trust. And what he means is that when we get off the treadmill of thinking that we have to prove ourselves, we can finally relax and trust that our growth or our sanctification stems from love and gratitude for God's grace toward us. That we can rest in Him. And the final grace that Paul talks about in this passage is that the power or strength or vitality to live this way is also a gift of God. That's what he says again in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. Or as John Newton puts it in Amazing Grace, grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. That is grace from beginning to end For us. And the power to live the Christian life does not come from some pull up our bootstraps, work harder mentality, but it comes from the power and strength that God gives us living in His love for us. It's grace from beginning to end. And finally, just to end, I have to reflect on this one little phrase that Paul uses in verse 8. Paul goes on to say that he's called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Meaning that of all that we know already, the riches of Christ, including all that we've just talked about in his grace, is only a fraction of what we will know. It's like the depths of the ocean. I was uh, talking to someone recently about how the scientists are still discovering new species of animals living in the depths of the ocean. Each coming with some peculiarities that are wildly unique and beautiful. And it's, un- it's, it's, it's unending. We keep finding these things. Uh, but, but what we have received in Christ, our justification before God, our acceptance before Him, our resurrection in Him, that we are incorporated into a loving community, that we are welcomed freely before His throne, that we are blessed with grace and gifts and calling, that we are given the Spirit to comfort and to guide us, that we are known and we are loved and we are cherished, that we are given a hope and a future, that we have a guarantee that through resurrection that every evil will be punished that every illness will be healed, that every tear will be wiped away and repaid, and confidence that we will live in God's presence and the fullness of joy and life everlasting. And yet that is only what we know. That's only what we know right now. It's a fraction of the whole. Christ's riches are unsearchable. They are beyond our vision our knowledge even our ability to comprehend and we will be forever searching and uncovering new riches new peculiarities new beauty and wisdom for all of eternity and in knowing that and in being overwhelmed by that reality by standing in Christ's alien righteousness and knowing our justification i pray that it might make us fully a human beings Fully alive human beings to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, you are full of grace and truth. You desire us to know and rest in your love and to live in light of that. Pray that we might be those who live even in hard times, as if we actually are free. Even in the middle of death, in the middle of of death, that we would live as those who are fully alive because you have made us alive in, in Christ. Pray that we would trust in your love for us, your plan for us, your grace toward us, and live in light of that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.